when I read for you the two verses we've been focused on, Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Again, this is God's Word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, while Your Word is, is very often so high and so lofty in its wisdom and the doctrines that it espouses, Lord, we confess that it is at one and the same time immensely practical for everyday life. And I pray, Lord, that, that our doctrine and our theology would never be an end in itself, but that we would learn what Your Word says so that we might worship You rightly and know You rightly and so that we might live according to Your commands. And that as a church, we might worship and function according to Scripture. So Lord, I pray that You would help us to understand a little more about what these verses teach us. Holy Spirit, please come and illuminate our minds to understand what's been written. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. In these verses, we have mentioned for the first time in the New Testament by no less than the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the greatest most helpful, most beneficial means of grace that God has given to His people, and that is the, the, the means of corporate prayer. And uh, the first week we spent in these verses, we, we looked at the power and the, the presence of Christ in our corporate prayers. And we need to keep that in the back of our minds as we, as we think about corporate prayer even more practically today than perhaps last week. A lot of people are under the impression that there is power in prayer. But what we learn when we study these verses, what Jesus is making very clear is that the power comes from Him and His presence with His people. You see, there's no power just in the fact that we've gotten together, and there's no power in the fact that we might close our eyes and talk. The power is, is, is there because He promises that when we gather in His name... Then He comes, and He's with us, and then there's power in those prayers mediated to the Father by the presence of His Son. So we start there. That's, that's sort of the overarching and undergirding exposition of those two verses. That's the, the doctrine that is extrapolated. But then what we begin to do is sort of unpack or apply what these verses teach. In other words, because we don't have... Uh, a sermon that's three or four hours long, we, we would take the doctrine and, and pull it out, and then we're taking several weeks to unpack the practical applications of these verses. So we saw last week a biblical defense of corporate prayer. We saw that corporate prayer was practiced prior to and throughout 
the Old Covenant era or age. Corporate prayer was prophesied for the New Covenant. Corporate prayer is commanded for the local church. It's requested from the local church by the Apostle Paul. We, we saw many references where it's exemplified by the local church as described in Scripture. In other words, we saw last week that the people of God have always been a people who get together, they gather, they assemble, they worship, and a part of that worship is gathered corporate prayer. Always. That's always been the case. And so we concluded last week by asserting that regular, consistent corporate prayer should characterize every New Testament church. And that a church that does not have regular, consistent corporate prayer as a distinctive mark of its life and ministry has failed to not only obey the Scriptures in that regard, but they've failed to even conform to the pattern of God's people from the very beginning. Again, that's not an opportunity for us to begin to look and to point at all of the, the, the people we would say, well, well, they must have failed. They're not doing it right. They're not doing it right because we would be in that category. That, that it gives us the opportunity to look at our own practice and say, what must we do as a church to conform to the pattern of Scripture? That was last week. A biblical defense of corporate prayer. So... Today we're looking at the second of, of three major headings of application. So the title today is The Biblical Disposition of Corporate Prayer. The Biblical Disposition of Corporate Prayer. And I want to give a, a brief word about that title. What do I mean by a biblical disposition or the biblical disposition of corporate prayer? Well, the word dispose means to put a thing in place, not dispose of, like throw something in the trash, but to dispose something is to put a thing in place, to set something for readiness, to, to order it or to control it. To dispose is to put something into a particular arrangement. So when Gideon is preparing to fight the Midianites and he has, been, has, has had his army dwindled down to 300, and that night, as the, the middle watch comes in the night, and he takes those 300 and he divides them into three different groups of 100, and they position themselves around the camp of the Midianites, he is disposing his troops. He is arranging them in a particular arrangement for a particular purpose. He was disposing his troops for battle. And so... The word disposition is the act of putting things into a proper arrangement, setting things in order. And so we're going to look at a biblical disposition of corporate prayer. I do believe that we have adequately defended the practice of corporate prayer. I think we would hopefully all agree, we're all on the same page, that it is essential to New Testament worship, corporate prayer. At this point then, we have to take into account the Apostle Paul's words as he writes to the church in Corinth with regard to their public worship. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. Now, without going into a, an all-out exposition of that, we can conclude 
that the stated seasons of corporate prayer should be such as are proper, such as are biblically or, or behaviorally acceptable. They should be arranged or disposed in a clearly ordered and sequential way, both in where they are in the service of worship and how they are carried out. All of that should fit under the heading, all things should be done decently and in order. So, just thinking practically, if everybody just started praying out loud all at the same time, that would not be decently and in order. That would be contrary to what Paul commands. So we're going to use our Bible again as the infallible rule of faith and practice. We're going to turn to the Scriptures to understand how the corporate prayers of God's people should be arranged or how they should be structured, how they should be disposed. Again, not disposed of. We're not throwing them in the trash. How they should be arranged. In other words, we're asking the question, very practical question, what should it look like when the church gathers and prays together. And I'm going to use three points to answer that question. Number one, the women should pray. Number two, the men should pray. And number three, the listener should be edified. Very simple outline. And I hope that the simple nature of this will, will be effective. I've tried to stay very, very, very basic. A lot of times we err because we make complicated things that God has made very simple, very basic. We, we add to it, and then we, we, then we run around scratching our heads and chasing our tails trying to figure out how to get what we want to do to fit the biblical pattern. So I, so I hope this, this simple outline will show you that it is, in fact, incredibly simple. Number one, the women should pray. The women should pray. It's often caricatured of the complementarian. That would be our biblical position of manhood and womanhood. It is often caricatured that we are oppressive of women. The complementarian thinks women have no role in the ministry of the church besides whatever might take place in the, the home. And when corporate worship takes place, well, the, the women are, are little, little more than onlookers. They're just wishing and dreaming that someday they could be out from the, the thumb of their husband so that they could contribute to the ministry of the church. Well, I would say from a multi-generational standpoint, there are very few duties more important than what takes place in our homes. As the Puritans would say, the, the home was the seminary of the church. That's where our, our next generations are being produced and taught. That should be encouraging, hopefully, to, to you all. But from a biblical standpoint and, a, and a, a pastoral viewpoint, when I look at our own church, I would say that there are few things more to be desired than a battalion of sincere, faithful, fearless women of prayer. So I'd remind you, under this heading, the women should pray first of the, the usefulness of faithful women. The usefulness of, or usefulness of faithful women in, in a general sense. Paul writes to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 1.5. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. So when, when it came time for Paul to leave Ephesus, 
and to put somebody in position who could be trusted to steady their course, maintain the, the direction of that young church, knowing full well he'd already told them fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. He knew they would come in. He needed somebody that he could put there who would guard that church from attack, who would defend that fledgling flock, and he chose Timothy. Now, Timothy, we learn, was a disciple of Christ. We learn from Scripture that Timothy was well spoken of by people in two different cities because of his faith. In other words, he was known in the area as a faithful, godly man. Now, we would ask, where did Timothy get that faith? Where was he taught? What seminary did Timothy go to? What, what theological books did Timothy have in his library that he, that he spent his time combing over? Well, we read the Scriptures knowing that his father was a Greek. We have no reason to believe anything other than that this young man who through the public reading of Scripture, exhortation and teaching, would fend off wolves from the church of Ephesus and set all things in order that ought to be done in the household of God was educated in the Scriptures by his mother and his grandmother. His father was a Greek. He was an unbeliever. It was, it was, it was mom and grandma who taught Timothy. In other words, history was changed. We have letters to him and about him and their church. History changed. The church led and instructed by a man trained in the seminary of Lois and Eunice. His mother and his grandmother, faithful women of God. Faithful women are useful to the church. May we never believe that what a church needs to advance or survive or grow is a strong preacher and a nice website. That's not enough. We need faithful women. Perhaps you remember the story of Hannah, mother of the prophet Samuel. She longed for a son. She, she prayed for a son. And when, when Eli, the priest, saw her praying, he thought she was drunk and he he rebuked her, but then we read in 1 Samuel 1, Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made with him. Samuel, the prophet who would anoint the greatest king that Israel had ever known, was born from a dr the dried up womb of a woman who knew that in her anxiety and in her vexation, she must pour out her soul to God. I would imagine some of us here are here today because there was a, a Lois or a Eunice or a, a Hannah in the closet of prayer pleading to God for us. We have so many young women, young mothers. Catch that. Read that in the Scriptures and see that and say, that's what I will be. I will be a Hannah. I will be a Lois. I will be a Eunice. I will be that woman who's known as a faithful, godly woman in the church. I pray that you catch that, that spark. Again, don't, don't ever think that a preacher is going to get us along as a church. Don't, don't adopt this mentality that through eloquence 
or personality or even devotion to the Scriptures is going to make a church grow. It's going to keep a church from being ripped to shreds by wolves. Because if a man, if that man, that servant of God, whoever he is, wherever he is, if he does not have an army of Loises and Eunices and Hannahs behind him praying and, and supporting and lifting up that church, that church will crumble. We have to have the prayers of, of faithful women. Faithful women are useful to the church. They're vital to the church. But I'll also have you consider the description of praying women. Not only are they just useful in a general sense in Scripture, but we actually have women involved in the corporate prayers of the New Testament church. One of the passages we looked at last week, Acts chapter 1, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brother. So he's... In this passage, he's just listed the 11 remaining disciples. And then he says, all these together with the women. Luke says, the women. It makes sense to me that the women are, is a reference to the women he had described in his gospel. In Luke's gospel, chapter 8, he says, the 12 were with him, that's Jesus, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. I think it's safe to assume those named here and the many others who followed Jesus in His ministry were a part of this early church prayer meeting as they awaited the gift of the promised Holy Spirit. And, and notice he says they... Speaking of the men, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. The way this is phrased, the, the, the language here is not left, has not left us to assume that the men were praying and the women were, were sort of peeking through the, the kitchen door waiting for them to finish. They weren't just there to watch. They weren't there to prepare sandwiches. The phrase, together with the women, assumes that the women were also instruments in prayer. They were taken up in the duty of prayer along with the disciples. The disciples and the women active in the prayers. The women prayed. So we have a description of praying women. But I think we also need to consider the need for decent and orderly women. The scriptures give us expectations. Everybody has expectations. The scriptures give us expectations for women with regard to their manner of life and with regard to their participation in the public worship of the church. With regard to their general manner of life. Paul, Peter writes this, 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 6. He says, and again, women, get, get this picture. If you've not focused on this, get this picture. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear. Again, it's, it's outward things. In that day, that would have been extravagance. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit in which, or which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves 
by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So godly women are characterized by gentleness and quietness. Their beauty is found in that, in their humility. And such women whose hope is in God are fearless women. Oftentimes far more bold than men when it comes to the general issues of life. Godly women are fearless. So we have a general manner of life laid out and, and, and displayed for us, but then with regard to the assembled worship of the church, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. I do believe that that explicit command should dictate our corporate worship and our corporate prayers. It's rooted in the Old Testament spirit-inspired gender binary. The, the, the scriptures know of, of none of the confusion of our day. There's, there is male and there is female and there are different roles. Not unequals. Not, neither is better than the other but with different roles. And so while we would plead, I would plead for the prayers of our women, we, we do see this historical pattern and precept that must be kept in place. So we would ask, how can the women benefit with their prayers if they are silent? Well, I would say in the same way that the prayers of Hannah benefited the nation of Israel. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Very simply, the quiet prayers of the heart, that is what God finds beautiful. What He labels beautiful is the quiet, gentle prayers of the heart. Now, again, lest we begin to think that that's somehow unfair, or that's not as good as, as what some, a duty someone else might have, remember that it was not an extravagant and lavish display of pomp and, and, and power that caused the Midianites such fear that they jumped up and started killing each other. It was a hidden, quiet army that sprung out of, of nowhere. They couldn't see them. All they could see was, was lamps. They could hear their voices. They jumped up and began to slaughter each other. Victory was not about display or pomp. It was about obeying God and relying upon God. God gets the glory for this because 300 men could not have done this. And the similar, similarly, corporate prayer is not about a show or being shown or being seen, but about conforming to the Scriptures. And I would imagine that it, it has often been an unseen army of women, wives, mothers, and grandmothers who have prevailed mightily with God to accomplish the great outpourings of His Spirit in, in previous generations. We, we don't know, but I would assume that to be the case. The, the, the mothers and the grandmothers, the Loises and the Eunices and the Hannahs who were quietly praying that prevails with God and He pours out His Spirit upon His churches. So rather than being this sequestered demographic who have nothing to offer, the Bible actually gives great examples of godly women who were Bold in their faith, sincere in their actions, quiet in their spirit, fearless because they hoped in God. And I pray that, that God would, would give us and, be, and, and continue to cultivate 
such useful, precious, praying women of the church. The women should pray. The second heading is that the men should pray. And if you still have your Bible open, turn with me to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the men should pray. Paul, writing to Timothy, there in Ephesus. Remember, he's writing these things so that if he doesn't get there in time, he would know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. He writes to him, first of all, then in verse 1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So here is an explicit, very clear statement from the apostle regarding the role of men in corporate prayer. Very simply, the men should pray. Again, in verse 1, he's already instructed corporate prayer is to be a priority, first of all then. And then he addresses himself to the question, well, who's going to pray, Paul? If it's, it's such a priority, who will it be? And he says, the men should pray. Not just males in general, but the men of the specific church. I desire that in all places, that is wherever there is a church, the men of that church should pray. He assumes every local church will have men. He assumes that the men of that church are to be praying. He doesn't say that he just wants the elders to pray. He just says the men. Are there men there? They should be praying. Now, don't answer out loud, but in the confines of your heart, between you and God, nobody can be deceived, nobody can be tricked, between you and God, ask yourself, seriously, ask yourself, am I a man? If you can say yes to that question, then Paul assumes you are to be praying in the church. The men should pray. But just like with the women, he does give qualifications. He has expectations. He says the men should pray, lifting holy hands, representative of a pure life, a man's deeds and actions, should be characterized by godliness and integrity. He should be known as a godly man. Holy hands, without anger. You may not be a man given to anger, but why? Because that's, that's not descriptive of a Christian man. If you say, well, I've just got a temper, now that's a sin. The Bible says don't even be friends with an angry man lest you learn his ways and become ensnared. Don't talk to him, don't be friends with him, and definitely don't be one of them. You can't be an angry, hot-headed Christian man, that, those are oxymorons. Lifting holy hands without anger, without quarreling. There shouldn't be any subliminal disputes or divisions existing between the, the hearts of the men who are praying. They must be men who gladly and willingly join with their church in prayers, in, in unity. They love the body. They love each other. They want to pray together. Holy hands, without anger, without quarreling. The men should pray. I do believe that by implication, men should lead in prayer. I think it's obvious from the teaching here and elsewhere that the role that's being described here is, is a role of leadership. That is, the men should lead the prayers. 
Now, to lead is not to stand back and say, go that way. That's not leading. Leading is when you go first and you set the course and other people follow along behind you, following in your path. I think the men should lead by illustration. That is, they should be men who lead in prayer visibly and audibly. They display to the congregation, this is what prayer is. This is what corporate prayer is. They lead in that regard. They should be those, the men are those who pray out loud in the hearing and in the sight of the congregation. They lead by illustration. They lead by expectation. Men who lead in public corporate prayer should be men who by their attitude and their demeanor display to the congregation that they expect their prayers to be heard. Men who lead in prayer should be bold in prayer. Not whimpering out a few doubtful stammerings, but should lay hold of the promises of God. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard. Our corporate prayers, our prayers in general, are not as if we're sitting and, and throwing mud at the ceiling, hoping some sticks, but knowing some of it's going to fall down. That's not prayer. Prayer is when God says, here's what I'm doing, here's what I want to happen, here's what I will do, and you say, yes and amen. You plead those promises. You lay hold. And so you're bold in prayer. Lead by illustration. Lead by expectation. Lead by conviction. The men who lead the congregation in prayer should do so out of the conviction of the heart that it is the duty of every local church to be taken up in corporate prayer and that it is Him, it is He who is to be leading that congregation to the throne of grace. He stands and He prays knowing, this is my job. I'm convicted of it. It's my duty. And so I stand and I pray. The men should pray. The men should lead in prayer. And notice the pattern that is given for male leadership. In this passage, it begins in verse 1 by saying prayer is a priority. Verse 8, he gives the instruction to the men. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In verses 9 through 12, he then goes into the instructions for the women. Very similar to what we read from Peter. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel and with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. He goes from the men to the women, and then in verses 13 and 14, he gives the reason why this is laid out. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So contrary to the ear-splitting shrieks of the modern feminists, Paul does not root his teaching in some cultural idea that, well, in Ephesus, you know, those women had an issue that he was trying to... No, he says it's, it's, it's creation. He very clearly states the creation order. Adam was, or Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then he uses Eve's deception. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The men are to lead audibly, 
and visibly while the women are to remain silent. That does not mean they can't pray. But they're not to lead audibly in the church. So as we continue disposing or, or putting in place the structures, hopefully your mind's already beginning to get a picture. We're putting into place structures of biblical worship and prayer. We see the women should pray and the men should pray. But we also see that men following the creation order are to be leading in the corporate prayers. They should be the leaders. Again, not the elders. The men lead in corporate prayer. Women pray. The men should pray. Number three, the listener should be edified. The listener should be edified. This is something we, we don't give a whole lot of credence to, I fear, in our day. The, the listeners to prayer should be edified. Now, we would hope that during a time of corporate prayer, as many of God's people would be praying as possible. Some would be leading, I would say the men would be leading intermittently throughout the time of corporate prayer. The, the women would be praying silently in their hearts to God. But we also know that the Bible teaches that our prayers are to be edifying to those who would simply listen and agree. Notice Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 again concerning corporate worship. He says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, because tongues is a, is a gift, was a gift of the Holy Spirit, where someone who did not know a language began to speak in that language, that's not even any use to the person who's doing it. They don't understand what they're saying. There must be interpreter. That's what he's saying. My mind is unfruitful. I'm not thinking about what's happening. He says, what am I to do? He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I'm going to use my thoughts, my language, and my spirit. He says, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. I'm going to think about what I'm saying, the doctrine that I'm singing. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now notice... The, the issue is corporate worship. The, the issue is obviously the use of foreign languages in worship. He says, if you give thanks, what is that? We call that, when you're giving thanks to God, we call that prayer. That's a use of prayer. He even began by talking about prayer. If you give thanks, and you do that in such a way that nobody can understand you, how can anyone in the position of an outsider one who doesn't understand you, how can they say, Amen, if they don't know what you're saying? You may be giving things well enough, but they don't know it. They can't understand you. The other person is not built up. You see, he's teaching by implication that during the audible prayers of those who are leading in prayer, there will be those who are listening. And those who are listening are doing so for the purpose of being built up being edified, encouraged, strengthened in their faith. And as those people are listening and being encouraged, they are expected 
to give their amen to what's being said. So we have a clear expectation of the amen or the amen in corporate worship and it is by those who are being edified as a sign of their participation and their edification. In other words, I've said this before, this is not a preaching show. It is corporate worship. As a body, we worship. And so if you're edified, you participate by saying, Amen. You, you agree. You, you affirm. We're, we're, we're worshiping together. And this is assumed in the corporate prayers of God's people. So it is legitimate for those who are part of corporate prayer to listen intently to those who are leading to affirm and agree with those prayers as if they were their own. As the men stand and lead the prayers, they are assuming that they are praying on behalf of the congregation, saying we and our and us. And those who are listening are, are supposed to be able to get behind those prayers and say, yes, this man represents us. And they acknowledge that by the adding of their amen throughout the prayers, at the end of the prayers, we say amen together. As a church, we agree with these prayers. In this regard, our, our corporate prayers are very similar to the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we sing. They are directed to God, yes, but they are for teaching and instruction, exhortation and admonition of the body. Edification of the body. As we sing, we're teaching each other doctrine. We're teaching each other about the church. We're, we're reciting the psalms to each other for the purpose of worship and memory. All this is directed to God. Prayer is the same way. We pray to God and the body is edified. I'm sure that some of the men would testify. They would say in the men's prayer meeting, I've been edified as I listen to another man pray. It builds me up. It strengthens me. Others could easily testify, I'm sure, to the, the education they've received in the school of prayer at the feet of an aged saint that they've heard pray and they, they, they wish that they could pray that way, knowing someday they will. But years of experience develop prayer in such a way that us young folks listen and, and we're just encouraged. We, can't, we just have to listen and we're taken by their prayers. And so, in corporate prayer, if you're not personally taken up in prayer, silently as someone leads, don't zone out. Don't doze off. Don't let your mind wander. Don't sit and critique the prayers of others. Listen and affirm. Give your amen. That is one of the greatest encouragements as, as a person, especially a man, stands in, in shivering nervousness to pray before the congregation to hear his brothers and sisters say, Amen, we agree. We, we like this prayer. We, we, we encourage this prayer. Take lessons in the school of prayer. Learn how to be unified as a body in corporate prayer. So the listeners are to be edified. So, in an attempt to do all things decently and, and in order... When it comes to the corporate prayers of the gathered church and their proper arrangement, it's very simple. The women should pray, the men should pray, and the listeners should be edified or built up. Now, by way of application, we can make this very practical. Again, I hope that as I'm, as I'm preaching, you're, you're hearing and begin to develop a, a picture in your mind. 
Very practical. Three points. Our current practices, our desired practices, and necessary transitions. Current practices. What are we, what are we already doing as a church body? Well, we have our men's Saturday prayer meeting. Begin for the purpose of seeking God and His blessings in our corporate worship services on the Lord's Day. That's, that was the fundamental start. We realize that as we gather for worship, we need prayer. We want God to move, need God to move, and so let's pray. Now we've continued in that and we've added to that a desire to intercede for our church family, to intercede for our nation, our, our local and federal government. I believe the men hopefully have been developing a sense of responsibility for the offering up of prayers. And it has been useful. We've prayed. We've, we've fellowshiped. We've, we've went out to breakfast. We've had a great time. So it's been good. Men's prayer meeting has been good. We also have scattered prayers in the worship service. I try to lead in, in a, some sort of a pastoral prayer. We have a, a prayer after we, we sing. We, we have a prayer for illumination before we move into the scriptures. We pray for thanksgiving and blessings of the elements of the Lord's Supper. We close in prayer and we ask God to bless our meal and our fellowship. So when it comes to the current forms of our corporate worship and our prayers, I don't think that we should, we should go off course there. I don't think that we're yet in excess of prayers. It's not like we're praying so much now that we're, well, if we're going to do more, we're going to get rid of something. We're not there yet. And I also think that what happens on Saturday mornings is a good thumbnail example of what it looks like for men to lead in prayer. That's what we're doing right now. That's our current practice. Heading number two, desired practices. Since we believe that corporate prayer should be a priority in the life of every local church and that corporate prayer should include the women and the men and listeners, outsiders, that it seems best to the elders that our current form of Lord's Day prayers should somehow be merged with what the men are doing on Saturday. Just put it together. Don't get rid of anything. We're not praying too much. We'll just put it together. If we did that, I believe prayers would be, at least they would become a priority in, 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 uh, in time and repetition of our corporate worship. I believe over time that may develop into a, a priority in our hearts, but I don't know that we're necessarily there yet. Everyone would be present to constitute the body. The women would be present in order to offer up their prayers. The men would be present to lead in corporate prayer. Visitors, outsiders, children would be given the opportunity to be edified and built up by corporate prayers. So it seems like the desire would just be to take what we do on Saturdays and what we do on Sundays and put them together. So the question of transition is how might we transition from our current practices to our desired practices? Again, I think it seems most obvious that we would take our Saturday morning prayer meeting with the men and move it forward about 29 hours and just do it during our Lord's Day worship. It would just become a part of our worship service. The men, like we do, would take turns leading in prayer. The women would be actively praying themselves and listening to and agreeing with the prayers of whoever's leading. Listeners of all types would be built up. Our children would learn prayer is a priority. 
Now, where in the service that would happen would, could it be anywhere. It's subject to change. The general concept would be left alone while the body as a whole would be able to participate. The, the body would be able to experience what the men experience already. So, again, I'm just asking that we as a church would pray and consider these things. Seek the Lord's help as we try to discern how to do these things properly and in order. Now, why would I include something that practical, scheduling and planning, in, in the application of a sermon? We might think, well, that's, that's business meeting talk. That's lunch talk. Why would I put that here? Well, it's because our Lord said, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, that it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I among them. Here we are gathered in His name, under His Lordship, sitting under His Word, seeking His guidance and His leadership in this regard. This is, this is where we are unified, around the Word, by the Holy Spirit. If we as a body cannot join our hearts together in eager longing for growth and for sanctification in this area, then there will most assuredly be some who are dragged by the scruff of their neck into a practice, merely going along to getting along, or to get along in order to somehow satisfy the pipe dream of a pastor. That's not what we want. That's not two or three gathered in my name agreeing on earth about anything. That's not what that is. That won't do. We have to consider these things together. We, we come to the Word, we preach the Word, we hear the Word, and we consider it as a body. We have to be convinced as a body that the promulgation of the gospel and the work of the kingdom of God are directly related to our corporate prayers. We have to have that conviction. We have to be convicted that the salvation of the souls of our children are directly related to our corporate prayers. You say, well, I pray by myself. So what? Both and, remember, it, they're, they're not exclusive. Directly related to our corporate prayers. We have to agree that the Holy Spirit's power working in and through the ministry of this church is directly related to our unity and our fervency and our faithfulness to cry out to God in corporate prayer. When we, as individuals, realize the conversations that we're having with lost friends, lost family members, and lost co-workers, and the gospel that we proclaim to them, when we realize, when we begin to believe, that must be clothed with power from on high, or it is useless, we'll start praying. Amen. See, right now, we, we, we barely scrape by trying to do everything in the flesh. We wonder why nobody's getting saved. Nobody, nobody wants to listen. Nobody wants to hear. How much time have you spent on your face before God in, in, in corporate worship? Or even alone? We, we don't. Again, we throw a little mud on the ceiling as we go to Him. Well, Lord, help me. Give me the words to say. That's not enough. We must plead with God. We must show Him we don't believe we can do it. We, we do believe the gospel is the power of God. Not because it's a story, but because the Holy Spirit accompanies the proclamation of the gospel. It's our duty as a body to pray for these things. Quoting Albert Martin, he said, It is an imp of hell who would try to keep a commando from doing his duty. There's somebody in the church who would be under the impression, well, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. That's demonic and satanic. We have to get beyond that. Repent. 
seek God's face in that regard. Again, I don't know that we're all super thrilled. I don't know that we're going to do it for five years and be super thrilled about it. We do what the Word says, and He conforms our hearts to His image. And it takes time as, as natural men. The Queen of Scotland once said that she, prayed the, or <laughs> prayed, she feared the prayers of John Knox more than all of the armies of England. He was known as a man of prayer. I think it would be nice if it could be heard on the lips of Satan that he feared the prayers of the women of Covenant Bible Church more than all of the big conferences that evangelicalism is trying to put on. That, that he would begin to tremble when the men of Covenant Bible Church begin to stand up and lead in prayer. We're, we're trembling and we're nervous and Satan's trembling because he knows our prayers are taking hold of God. Now, real quickly in closing, these exhortations don't come without warning. If you begin to take these things to heart, if we as a church begin to unite around this and pursue a biblical pattern and posture of corporate prayer, the devil will not be slow to unleash an all-out, no-holds-barred assault on every one of us, including the church body, because he hates it when we pray. And so you better be ready. This is not something where we say, well, yeah, I guess it'd be cool to be, have prayer. No, 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 no. It's not going to be cool. It's going to be the hardest thing we've ever done. And it will be a constant battle of, of spiritual warfare. We're called the church militant for a reason. And the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not carnal. They're divine. They, they destroy strongholds. But they're not, it's not just us getting together and doing something. It's got to be divine power. One of our weapons is corporate prayer. It is intercessory prayer on behalf of our nation, our church, the world, the lost as a body. We'll talk about that next week, just the specific things we see in Scripture that, that we should be praying for. So, as we come to the Lord's table, let's seek the grace that we will need for the days ahead. As the elements are distributed, examine yourself. Take inventory of your, your battle gear. See what you've got. You're going to have some things that you don't, you don't need. I mean, you're going to need some things you don't have. And so here's where we come and we receive grace from the Lord. So let me, let me pray and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll distribute the elements. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would use what's been said, and, and, and even if it's just the, the reading of the Scriptures, erase everything I've said if it's been untrue. I pray that the Scriptures would show themselves to be true, that your Holy Spirit would use and accompany your Word to accomplish that which you've purposed it to accomplish from the foundation of the world. Lord, I pray that as we come to your table, you'd give us grace. Lord, we are not a church of prayer, but we want to be one. We ask that you'd make us into a church of prayer. We ask that you would make us such a church that the devil would tremble at our prayers. Lord, we pray that you would bless this bread and this juice, the symbols of the broken body and blood of our Savior. Lord Jesus, give us grace in this. Commune with us here. We thank you and we praise you for all that you've done and all that you will do in the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.